Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 12th of July, 2021, and this is episode 216. On this week's Dispatches podcast, author Mark Hillier talks about his latest book, which looks at the equipment and clothes of the Royal Flying Corps during the First World War. This book is published by Pen and Sword. Mark spoke to me over the interweb from his home in England. Mark, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on for, for to talk about the book and uh, about myself. Um, yeah, my interest, uh, basically, I was in the uh, Air Cadets as a, as a kid from the age of 13. I've always been interested in aviation and aircraft. Uh, ended up uh, getting a private pilot's licence and becoming a flying instructor uh, with a, a penchant for open cockpit flying. So I've always been interested in... Uh, the sort of breezier side of aviation, if you like, and ended up flying Harvard's, Stearman's, uh, Chipmunks, all sorts of vintage tailwheel aircraft. But um, but I've always enjoyed writing and also researching, um, mainly because uh, I found out when I was a young boy that my great uncle uh, was in the Royal Flying Corps. <clears throat> so he was uh, an engine inspector and engineer for rotary Lerone engines and uh, a second lieutenant. And he then went on to uh, stay in the uh, RAF when it became the RAF in 1918. Um, so yeah, history uh, and uh, my family, you know, connection with the RAF and the Royal Flying Corps is what really got me into researching the kit bag book. So why do you think a book is necessary on the equipment and uniforms of the RFC? One of the things that's always fascinated me really as a, as a pilot as well is, is the interaction of the human being with the aircraft and how we survive in that environment. Um, so, you know, especially with open cockpit aircraft, you know, it, it's, a, it's a breezy, chilly place. But uh, all the books that you read about, you know, or you see, uh, on the bookshelf are uh, mainly about aircraft and squadrons and uh, colour schemes which are fantastic really interesting but for me it's that human element of survival in the air and the interaction with aircraft so you know what kit did they wear how good was it um, you know and what was the development of it you know for me that's fascinating and there weren't really very many books out there about that topic at all. So before we go any further could you tell us what the Royal Flying Corps was and how it was organised? Yeah sure so originally I mean most people think that um, you know the Royal Flying Corps was the start of flying in in with the military, but it actually wasn't. It stems back to 1911, really, with the Royal Engineers, and they had a hot air, um, uh, well, an air battalion that flew hot air balloons, but also looked at the possibility of using fixed wing aircraft as it was developed, uh, and uh, that eventually then became uh, the Royal Flying Corps under Royal Warrant in 1912. The King issued a Royal Warrant for the new service, uh, which had two parts to it: uh, a military wing and a naval wing uh, which had a joint central flying school so that was really the start of the first sort of organized air force in the world really with with fixed wing aircraft when we are considering equipment and uniform what are the sort of environmental conditions and challenges that an air crew would face when flying above the western front in sort of open cockpit airplane it's quite a harsh environment so uh, you know i liken in my book uh, to, to the guys being sort of early explorers and mountaineers really because they were going up against uh, pretty 
pretty harsh conditions. So not only did you have uh, the colder altitude, obviously the temperature drops dramatically the higher you go, uh, but obviously you're battling slipstream as well. So it sort of tears at everything you wear, whether it's a flying helmet or a pair of goggles, uh, as you're flying at sort of 80 to 100 miles an hour. If you liken it to sticking your hand out of a car window, you you know at speed that your arm is pulled back. Well, that sort of uh, slipstream is tugging at every piece of kit and, and also adding to the wind chill as you fly along. Uh, add to that as well the unreliability of aircraft at the time. Uh, and much was said originally about the fact that flying was probably more of an art form than a science at that point in time. <laughs> um, but it was pretty harsh, you know, so temperature, slipstream, noise. Uh, you were inundated with, you know, the noise of the engine uh, and the slipstream past your ears. You couldn't hear very much. Smell, um, oil in your face, engine oil. Uh, and then, of course, later on in the war, um, as they got higher and higher with aircraft, um, obviously you would suffer possible hypoxia. So lack of oxygen, uh, the higher you go, um, your concentration becomes difficult. Um, in actual fact, uh, it used to be known as a happy death because eventually you'd sort of become unconscious and wouldn't really realise it. You'd be quite relaxed. Uh, but it, it did obviously drain uh, your performance uh, in terms of lack of oxygen. And, and I remember reading a, a report by one pilot that said that, you know, the first time he'd flown on oxygen at 17,000 feet in 1917, the world became glorious technicolour again. It had been fairly grey up to that point. And I'm even survived. It's surprised that they managed to, uh, you know, to fly and fight at those altitudes uh, by the end of the war up at sort of 17, 18,000 feet without oxygen, because, you know, the, the, the uh, issue of hypoxia today is well known uh, and how it can obviously starve your brain of oxygen and, and make you unconscious. And what about the temperature? What sort of temperatures were people dealing with, you know, at that sort of 17,000 feet? So, so temperatures at altitude, you know, you could be down around about the sort of minus 20, uh, minus 30. And some pilots, uh, even in all their reports, used to write, you know, regardless of the number of layers they put on, they'd never been so cold in their life. Uh, and even by sort of 1917, with the advent of, you know, really nice fur boots and Sigcot suits, the, the temperature would still be, you know, bone chilling. And they would come down after patrols of two hours uh, with frostbite on their fingers, potentially on their nose. Uh, and it was it was very, very harsh uh, and uh, not an environment that was very pleasant. Uh, adding to that, the fact you're being chased by enemy aircraft, being shot at, uh, and obviously at lower levels, uh, anti-aircraft fire, um, you know, how they even managed to, to focus, concentrate, navigate with all these things going on around them and the conditions to to sort of survive at the same time um you know flying clothing needed to develop uh, to help these guys uh, achieve air superiority uh, and to be able to focus to carry out the sorties they, that they were tasked to do so let's start in 1914 now if i was a, a, an observer or pilot um what sort of clothes would i wear what would be the sort of typical uniform that that, 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 that a, a flying officer would have so it was, it was very very basic at the beginning I mean, there are memos early on before the Royal Flying Corps started talking about what sort of attire would a gentleman pilot wear. And, and that goes anything from a boiler suit to uh, a long leather coat. But really, uh, in the very first days of the Royal Flying Corps, um, mostly, as far as we can work out, there were available issue le long leather jackets um, and uh, over trousers. Uh, and you would have a, a leather cap. Some of those were unlined. Some had fur lining. But it was very, very basic uh, and a pair of leather gauntlets which were more akin to driving gauntlets and there's a lot of uh, similes if you like with um, you know driving kit at the time that 
that people use for motoring. Uh, and often people, uh, when they're collecting Royal Flying Corps kit, can sort of uh, think, well, that's that's not, you know, it's not got a broad arrow mark. It's not Royal Flying Corps. But a lot of it was just adapted from what was available for the Royal Engineers uh, down to things like basic goggles. They had rubber rimmed basic goggles, which were used for driving, but then adopted for, for flying um, because that's all they had available at the time. And how had the pilots' uniform and equipment changed by sort of 1917, 1918? So there'd been quite a lot of thought gone into uh, development of kit by then. And there's some memos uh, that exist at the National Archives, which talk about uh, we can't do another winter without developing flying kit. <laughs> um, the, the pilots need some more uh, equipment and better suited to higher altitudes. So by 1917, you start to see the fug boot come in, which was uh, a nice long sort of thigh length furry boot. Um, and you had uh, gauntlets and gloves that were specifically designed with uh, fingers uh, with a mitten finger, but actually the, the cap of the, of the glove could be pulled back to reveal your fingers for operating uh, equipment in a cockpit, whether it was a camera or a machine gun. Uh, you also had better flying caps, leather uh, flying caps with fur lining, uh, with peaks and uh, obviously neck protectors, face guards. Uh, but the, the, the other thing that was a sort of a major development, if you like, was the Sigcot suit, which was uh, a nice one-piece fur-lined suit, um, which obviously helped with the cold at higher altitudes. So there was some thought that went into developing that um, that kit, um, but it was it was still quite basic. And was the and, and who actually provided this kit? Because obviously a lot of trench um, equipment, you know, such as mirrors and trench coats, was actually produced by people like Harrods and and top stores. Was this, was the same similar with flying equipment? Absolutely. So um, although there was the War Department marked kit, a lot of the manufacturers were high street shops. Whether it was Harrods, Gamages was another one. Uh, there, there were lots of companies that were making it and selling it on the high streets. So uh, anything that was issued you could buy it and the patterns were ex- were almost identical um, so you would look in a, a 1916 edition of flight magazine and you'd find all of the kit that you could probably uh, get on issue and, and bizarrely even the early Royal Flying Corps kit lists um, doesn't actually issue uh, kit per man it issues kit per squadron um, so those that were obviously more affluent and more well off could actually afford or, or would go out and buy their own kit uh, not want to share kit with other people on the squadron but uh, obviously as time went on it became kit issued per person and did the uh, royal flying corps sort of develop a very separate uniform um from from their sort of army because technically they were still part of the army until april 1918 that's that's correct yeah so um although they were part of the army it was uh, strange in the fact that anyone that had come from another regiment or seconded to the royal flying corps for another regiment would retain often their cuff rank uh, military uniform and the only addition to that would be their royal flying corps wing um, um, sometimes they would change their cap to a uh, just a Royal Flying Corps badge, but to all intents and purposes, you'd see the same uniform. But in 1912 into 1913, uh, the King approved uh, the maternity tunic, which was like a plaster-on-fronted uh, tunic that was specifically for the Royal Flying Corps, which actually marked them out as a, as a sort of a separate uh, regiment, if you like, uh, from the rest of the army. And that, that was the only uh, organisation that wore that particular tunic. And uh, yeah, quite smart-looking with often putties or long boots uh, and uh, often a field service cap or a forage cap, you know, uh, whichever whichever you wanted. But it was a mix and match and you, you won't find uh, any sort of, um, uh, you know, c- continuity in photographs of the First World War 
or uh, every photograph you'll see all mix and all manner of uniform uh, variations if you like it, it, it was quite open to interpretation now so thinking about sort of specific items one issue that um, has always been sort of mentioned with 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 reference to sort of first world war pilots and observers is the fact they didn't have parachutes could you explain mm. what it was i mean it has been said that it was because you know it was to encourage morale is there any truth behind that i've not found anything that indicates that the uh, the air board as it was then or or uh, the war department were saying that uh, parachutes shouldn't be issued because it would encourage cowardice and that people would jump out of an aircraft that might be recoverable you know which, which would aid the war effort and of course that that sort of rumor has gone around for years and years and years what to me seems to be more probable is the fact that aviation developed quite quickly and parachutes didn't there was very little research done into parachutes at the time the ones that were available were extremely heavy uh, for balloon observers and very large and of course in an aircraft um, increasing the weight and also the fact that the size of the cockpit is very small uh, and the operation of the parachute very difficult so even if you were able to think about bailing out and you've been shot up remember that your fuel tank uh, was literally in front of you no armor plating the chance of that aircraft being structurally damaged and possibly being on fire and the fact that you were being capacitated by rounds from an enemy aircraft a the chance of you getting out successfully b being able to operate any equipment uh, and not be trapped in the rigging or the fact that the aircraft might be on fire so the practicalities of a parachute were were actually not great either um, so development was one thing practicality weight size the Germans did issue uh, parachutes but again you know you had a one in three chance I would think of surviving and, and not all the German pirate pilots that bailed out and their observers survived the experience um, so it was very very early on for parachutes and, and of course there wasn't really a lot of development going on um, and the Royal Flying Corps, well, RAF as it was, didn't really start flying with them till late 1918, early 1919, when the war had finished. I was just, I was just wondering, as a matter of curiosity, do you actually have a parachute in your aircraft today? So, if you're flying a, a sort of an open cockpit biplane, would you actually ha- have a chute yourself? I, I never used to fly with a parachute in an open cockpit aircraft, only because uh, most of the time, if I had engine problems or engine failure, um, short of a structural failure, um, I could uh, get the aircraft down on the ground. I could glide to the ground um, quite. Safely, and I was happy to fly without one. Um, but now uh, the thoughts, you know, as if you're doing aerobatics and you're increasing the risk uh, of you colliding with another aircraft or, or structural failure of an aeroplane, the, the sort of current thinking is it's better to wear a parachute. And I must admit, if I was doing aerobatics, I would uh, I would take a parachute with me. Yeah. And what about the issue of body armour? Because obviously in the Second World War, you know, American bomber crews were issued with flak jackets and things like this to, to absorb flak. Was there any type mm. of body armour that pilots could wear um, to protect them? from from bullets i've not seen anything uh, that would indicate anything issue um i mean i i've read stories of some pilots you know contemplating taking something up with them but it adds to the weight and the discomfort so i think most pilots didn't bother uh, i've not found anything as i say that was issued by the air board um or any memos that sort of indicate that was really considered and of course adding it onto the aircraft at the time would just add to the weight the performance wasn't you know didn't need uh, sort of degrading any further so and how did them um, sort of royal flying corps uh, equipment actually compared to French, German and later American um, equivalent? I think the uh, the Royal Flying Corps stuff, I mean, the variety of Royal Flying Corps kit was, was uh, and what was available through our 
uh, high, high street retailers really was was quite considerable there was a lot available different types of goggle masks uh, face protectors um, so you know aviation uh, wasn't uh, you know, hard done by for choice um, the French again had a reasonable choice but mainly it's all leather jackets and uh, you know a lot of it was just layering up more than anything but I think you know the Royal Flying Corps actually the chaps had more uh, choice available to them um, the Germans seemed to think uh, more logically about the use of uh, their goggles um, but uh, I haven't really done a lot of study into the German Air Force side of it but I do think that we didn't have a bad selection by the end of the war you know we were, were not doing too badly and obviously we considered things like uh, research into uh, oxygen bottles for high altitude uh, we got electrically heated suits so we you know we were starting to get uh, into the idea that we needed to look after the air crew and, and develop kit that suited. And finally where can people learn more about your research? So uh, I've got a website um, which uh, I've actually started putting some pictures up uh, about the book and, and the kit that I've uh, written about at markhillier.net uh, or you can go online to uh, Pen and Swords website and uh, find out more about the book The Royal Flying Corps Kit Bag. Mark thank you very much for your time. No problem cheers. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.